A pleasure to welcome our first guest today back to the program. He's a great guy. He is a professor and Canada Research Chair in the Department of Chemistry and Biochemistry at Laurentian University in Sudbury, Ontario, my old school. Always a pleasure to welcome Professor Thomas Merritt to the program. We're going to talk coffee again. Thomas, good morning. Good morning, Sterling. How are you? I am well, thank you, sir. It's great to have you back. Uh, just before we dive into coffee and liver disease and all of that stuff, can I take a couple of seconds, Thomas, to just check in with you? Uh, last conversation we had was not about coffee. It was about the financial conundrum Laurentian University yeah. has found itself in, made the national papers, uh, and uh, a difficulty making ends meet staff and professors, uh, academic and administrative. Uh, uh, there were uh, layoffs and so on. What's the status going forward uh, as we look at the next term in September? Yeah, it, right now uh, we are looking forward. So we've got uh, a, a summer program that's going on now, um, and we've got terms starting in the fall. It looks like we're going to be in person. Um, mm. it, it will be a different university, and I think everybody's on a bit of eggshells just to see how that's all going to pan out. Um, but we've got a lot of good professors that are still at the university, a lot of good programs that are here. Um, and we're going to find a way to make it work. I'm glad to hear it. By the way, with you speaking of in-person, I, I detected a bit of uh, optimism in your voice there. Uh, are you looking forward to more uh, to, to the return to in-person? Or, do you, or were you one of those, Thomas, who successfully managed to, to uh, pivot into Zoom land and uh, pull it off? I, you know, I think both of those things can be true. I, you'd have to ask my students how successful I was. Um, but I, you know, I felt like we got material across uh, with the Zoom format. Um, I had students, uh, I had a graduate class in, in the fall, and I had students logging in from China. Um, so they were graduate students who, because of the closed borders with the pandemic, couldn't come back into the country. Um, mm. They were enrolled. They didn't want to lose a semester. Um, they would log in at midnight their time and stay with me until 3 a.m. in the morning. Um, wow. Their dedication. Yeah, it was awesome. Uh, the, the student in particular was, was fantastic. So, you know, nobody likes to give a class by Zoom, I don't think. Um, it, I'm looking forward to having people back in the classroom. I'm, I'm not teaching in the fall. I'll be on sabbatical. Um, oh. I'll tell you, I'm very much looking forward to having my research program um, back to some kind of normalcy. We, we have been doing research for the last year and a half, but it's a challenge. Um, we, you know, everybody's masked up. We've only got a couple of people in the lab at a time. Mm -hmm. uh, a lot of that is going to continue until we get everybody doubly vaccinated and we, you know, we know what is and isn't safe. Um, but there's a, there's an optimism around finding some kind of normalcy and, and just the human interactions. You know, we don't, you don't go into research because you want to sit by yourself and at, at stare at a computer all day. Right. Um, being in the lab with students, with other researchers, interacting with people in the hallway, that's a big part of being in science, and it's a big part of being in university. So I think everybody is, is looking forward to having those in-class experiences again. Um, and, you know, maybe with some hybrid stuff, we'll have people that, are, that will continue to do some kind of things online. Uh, mm -hmm. I think we've learned, everybody has learned an enormous amount how you do that successfully, um, or at least more successfully. Well, the, at very, very least, uh, what the pandemic has taught educators everywhere is because of again, necessity being the mother of invention and, and most most people uh, pivoting successfully to one degree or another. Really, we've learned that 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 technical dimension really is just another way of doing things, but it's now permanently added on as a way of doing things, isn't it? 
I think you're entirely correct. Um, and so one of the other hats that I wear and, and what I would be doing right now if it wasn't raining outside, uh, I run an accessible sport program. Um, and people with disabilities have, uh, you know, as long as I've been involved with accessible sports, almost 20 years, have been saying that we need to, to approach things differently to, to accommodate different abilities. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, a lot of the times people say, well, you know, we, it's, it's too expensive. It's too complicated. We can't do this. We can't do that. Um, and there are a lot of things that we've been able to accommodate with the pandemic um, that are going to improve things for people that have different accessibility issues. Um, you know, getting, if, you, if you've got a mobility issue, getting physically to a conference is a challenge. Um, I just wrapped up a conference Thursday. Um, we had, I think, 120 participants from across Canada. Uh, and people were you know, coming in from their labs if they were able to get to their lab or they were coming in from their living rooms like I was doing. Mm-hmm. Um, and we're, we're going to see that continue to some extent. Uh, people want to get back to, to in-person meetings, but we'll be able to accommodate things a lot differently after this pandemic. I think so. Yeah. And it's, I just uh, I enjoy the optimism uh, and I'm, I'm hopeful that uh, that it's it's well placed. I think that by September 1st, have you had uh, one or two shots so far? I, I will get my second shot probably Wednesday. So I know oh, there you go. Eight, there you go. Right. So eight eight weeks is Wednesday, I think, uh, to the Tuesday or Wednesday. So I'll be juggling around Canada Day and we've got a series of clinics up here to get people in for their second shot. Well, that's great stuff. And there's the, that's the ticket, isn't it? Once we get uh, that, uh, once we hit that mathematical herd immunity number or close enough to it, that really does start opening the doors and takes a lot of pressure off the variants, which are still terrifying a lot of people. And, and you know, the more of this get, get vaccinated, that, that just keeps reducing the, uh, the impact or the potential impact of these variants. Thomas, yeah, I want to talk about coffee right. with you. We, you. You and I sure. have had a few very fascinating conversations about coffee uh, since we got to know each other. There's a new survey out. This is a British survey that asks the question, can a coffee a day keep liver disease away? And and I suppose the most arresting part of this thing, of this survey and the story, was the sample size. They had almost half a million people uh, involved in the study. So talk about a, a, a solid database. Tell us more, please. Yeah, it's it's a great study. It, and, and, you know, to, to be fair, uh, they have 500,000 people participating in something called Biobank. And it's a large scale study of a lot of things. Uh, it, it's not a 500,000 person study of coffee. Exactly. Uh, it's, you know, one of the things they can ask about is, is coffee consumption. Uh, but the, the sample size is amazing. So they've got 500,000 people from across the UK. Um, they're gen- they are centered around urban centers so that you can get people in for medical evaluations. And it, it's a it's an association study, so they're they're not experimenting. They're saying, okay, of the five hundred thousand people, how many people hit this criteria, this criteria, this criteria? So, okay. how many are coffee drinkers? How many are not coffee drinkers? If you drink coffee, what kind of coffee do you drink? And then they look at medical history and say, okay, over the almost eleven years we've been running this um, program, what what do we see for a medical history? And one of the things they looked at was liver health. And really strikingly, when they put that all together, when you look at all forms of coffee consumption and essentially all forms of liver disease, you see this really strong correlation that moderate coffee drinking is associated with a lower risk of liver disease. And that's, Interesting. that's a really great conclusion. 
Interesting. And it doesn't matter whether you're, because you, uh, you prefer decaf coffee a lot more than I do. I, I don't like it at all. You, uh, you will split your, your loyalties are quite evenly divided in that regard. But, but as far as the researchers and the study were concerned, it didn't matter whether you drank caffeinated or decaffeinated coffee. The, sa- the same effect on liver health uh, was, was good for both. Yeah, and so the other thing that's really striking in the study, and and it has everybody scratching their head, is it also doesn't matter what kind of coffee you drink. So if you drink instant coffee, if you drink ground coffee, if you drink decaf coffee, if you drink espresso, if you drink filtered coffee. And the reason that this is such a conundrum is when we look at these kind of associations, and so they're, they're really clear associations with this liver disease study, but they're also studies that have shown really clear associations that there's a lower risk of Alzheimer's and Parkinson's uh, forms of diabetes and coffee consumption. In some of these cases, we can put a mechanism together. We can say, okay, well, it looks like it's this part of the coffee or it's that part of the coffee. The the issue that we're struggling with with this current study is it's not caffeine because decaf coffee gives the same effect. And so if it's not caffeine, you sort of go down the list. And, and honestly, coffee is one of the most complex, complex drinks you can imagine. Mm-hmm. There are thousands of compounds in that cup of coffee. I mean, you, you, you drink it, and oftentimes we're thinking of this you know, delivery vector for that caffeine boost. But caffeine is one of a thousand components. And we actually think a lot of the medical benefits come from the other components. Okay. Some of those components are, are oils. Lipids. And, and sometimes, depending on how you make the coffee, you can actually see a little bit of a sheen to the coffee. And those are the oils that are in that coffee bean. Actually, if you, if you grind your own beans, especially with a dark roast, when you pull the bean out, it, also, it almost has an oily feel to it. Mm-hmm. Those oils give a lot of the flavor to the coffee. A lot of the bitterness actually comes from, from some, of the, the, uh, some of these compounds that are, that are in the coffee. They also, we think, give some of the health benefits. Ah. The, the issue, though, is those oils are almost entirely missing from instant coffee. But in this study, we see the same positive impact on, on liver health with instant coffee. So it, it's, it's not the caffeine because decaf coffee does, does the same thing. Right. It's not the oils because the oil-free coffees do the same thing. And we're sort of we're running out of, of what the pieces are that, that we can put the puzzle together with. Interesting. Um, so Thomas, it's an interesting study. Thomas Merritt is a professor of chemistry and biochemistry at Laurentian University in Sudbury. Back with us this morning because uh, he is our coffee guy. And we're talking about a new study from England with uh, almost a half a million people as their database asking the question, can a coffee a day keep liver disease away? And Professor Merritt, uh, as we went through the study, uh, the researchers say, yes, the evidence is strong enough to say that we, we think it can, but we're not entirely sure how it happens. And you began to tell us how complex uh, a substance coffee is, all of those ingredients. You said thousands of ingredients. And and we looked, uh, first of all, to caffeine, of course, the most obvious ingredient, and then the oils that are part of coffee as well. And and neither of those two were determined to be the the, uh, providing the effect that uh, helped keep liver disease away. So as they look right. at the rest of those ingredients in coffee, what do you suspect is the is that magic ingredient that works as a preventative for liver disease? Yeah, that's a really great question. And, and one of the things that the authors of this study 
come up with is maybe we're not actually eliminating the different things. So maybe there is a caffeine effect, but it's only part of the story. And maybe there's an oil effect and it's part of the story. Um, the, the strongest protection the, the associate, association that they found was with ground coffee, where all of these things are at their highest concentration. Okay. Um, but there was this effect with, with still with instant coffee and with decaf coffee and other forms of coffee. So they, they sort of say, well, we're, we're not really sure. And, and maybe we're just missing something. So there's another part of coffee. It's called chlorogenic acid. How's that? Uh, right. it, and there's, there's not a better name for it. Literally, that's the, the simplest name is chlorogenic acids. And there's a lot of interest in these molecules. Is it, it, they themselves are a group of at least 60 different molecules in coffee. Um, and they're, they're responsible for the bitter taste of coffee. Um, and it ends up that they do really interesting things. These chlorogenic acids do really interesting things to the, the microbes, the, the bacteria and other things that live in your gut. Um, it's called the microbiome, and it's this incredible ecosystem that's inside of all of us, and it keeps us healthy, and, and literally it allows us to live. So the, the bacteria that are inside of us, and we think of them as sort of good bacteria, mm-hmm. um, they have an enormous impact on, on your health, your metabolism, essentially every aspect of, of your day. And these chlorogenic acids that are found in coffee have been shown to, to change the profile of the organisms we find in this microbiome. And, and it's sort of like, imagine you're, you're changing the, the ecosystem around you. And so the birds that you see are slightly different, or the, the fish in the sea are slightly different. Um, and so one of the possibilities is these positive health effects that we're seeing from coffee. They may actually be a combination of caffeines and the oils, but also these chlorogenic acids. And maybe what we're seeing is an indirect effect. So the coffee is promoting a healthy microbiome, and then the healthy microbiome leads to healthy liver health and healthy wow. sterling, healthy Thomas. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it's a reasonable model. They, 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 they can't prove it. Um, there's some really amazing work that's being done in animal models to, to try to test this. Um, you can imagine we don't really test things in humans. Um, we, we look at associations. We come up with interesting ideas. And then we do things like in my lab, we go back and we test them on fruit flies because we're mm-hmm. more than happy to, you know, biologically experiment on fruit, li- fruit flies in a way that we're not going to on, on you or me. Sure. So it, it's, you know, the punchline of biology is always it's complicated. Um, and with coffee, things are always complicated and, and often in an, in an interesting way. And I think a reasonable takeaway from this study uh, is that the health effects that we're seeing are probably driven by a combination of things because we do see it in, in all these different ways when you drink coffee. And likely it's an interaction between what it's doing directly to our bodies and then indirectly what it's doing to this microbiome, these bacteria that live in your gut, uh, and how that interaction of you as an organism and then all of these organisms that you're harboring in your digestive system, that's what's leading to this overall effect. Interesting stuff. So ultimately, because it's still um, largely unknown what the specific uh, ingredient or perhaps combination of ingredients in coffee that really do effectively help reduce the occurrence of liver disease in humans, ultimately, Thomas, that, that research could lead to whatever that magic combination of ingredients is, that combination could turn out to be some kind of therapy in fighting liver disease in people who already have it. Yeah. 
And, and, and honestly, it's probably most effective in preventing liver disease in people who don't have it yet. Okay. And, and we, I think we may have had this conversation before. I mean, there, there are all these, you know, you'll see a headline, coffee cures cancer or coffee causes cancer. It, it, it doesn't do either of those things. Right. Um, but coffee consumption will reduce your risk of cancer. Actually, one of the things that come out of, comes out of this study is coffee consumption is associated with a lower risk of some forms of liver cancer. It's not going to cure liver cancer, but it seems like drinking coffee is associated with having lower incidence of liver cancer. Right. That's what, what it says. What yeah. the authors, so, so what the authors of this study are saying is liver disease is, is a growing problem globally. Yes. And what their study suggests is promoting coffee might actually help slow that spread of liver disease on a, on a global basis, especially in areas where med- like really good but really expensive medical care is in short supply. Mm-hmm. And so perhaps it's something as simple as having a couple of cups of coffee a day may help keep that, uh, that global health crisis in a little bit more at bay. Right. And quoting from the study here, quote, this would be especially valuable in countries with lower income and worse access to health care and where the, the burden of chronic liver disease is highest. Yeah. So, again, honestly, uh, sorry, go, go ahead. ahead. So, I mean, honestly, you can also say that in in communities. So they're, they're, they're sort of focusing on countries where medical care is, is in shorter supply. If we right. just focus internally, Sterling, if you look in Canada, Medical care is, is universal, but it's not, right? And, and if you are economically disadvantaged, you don't have the same access to medical care. Mm-hmm. Then, and so maybe just having a couple of cups of coffee is not a bad way to address this issue of, of growing liver disease problems. It is interesting, though, and you and I have talked about this in the past, Professor Merritt, the whole, the coffee, the popularity phases that coffee's gone through over the years, because, you know, uh, <laughs> yeah. one, if, if, you know, it goes through a, a, a fits and starts of being really good for you and very beneficial. Oh, boy, you know, any more than two cups of coffee a day and you're in serious trouble. And, and it's really hills and valleys as we follow the, the tale of coffee over the years. But at, currently, in the summer of 2021, coffee is back. It's in favor, and in fact, it's in fashion as well, isn't it? I, you know what? To me, coffee is always in fashion. And, and I think one of the points that you made in the middle of that is really important. You said something about two cups. You know, everything is moderation. And one of the things that the authors mentioned in this study is they actually can't look at sort of dosed response. Right. And what they don't want people to walk away with this from is saying, well, you know, if I have a cup of coffee, that's good. But if I have six cups of coffee, is that six <laughs> times as good? And, and it's not. <laughs> Right. So, yeah, right. You know, too, a couple of too much of even a good thing is still too much, isn't it? When that led us to that decaf conversation that we had earlier, that that's, right. you know, that's one of the ways you handle that too much of a good thing thing. So again, it's moderation is the key. It, 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 it all, at all times, you, you need to sort of be looking to balance. You're, you're always looking to achieve balance rather than too much of any one thing in any one direction, right? I think that's a great, really great way to put it. Absolutely. So now, uh, as far as recommendations from this, we can't we can't extrapolate from this study, as you've said a couple of times already. There's no proof here that, uh, in terms of uh, obvious evidence, A plus B equals C. But there's enough of a, a human study base, Thomas, to suggest strongly that coffee may in fact be a very, very inexpensive um, 
uh, device or way of combating a chronic liver disease, especially. And that's just not yeah. a bad thing. No, it's not a bad thing. I, I think it's a great takeaway. One of the strengths of the study, you mentioned this at the very beginning, is the half million people that, that participated. One of the funny things in that is they had a hard time getting enough non-coffee drinkers to have a sample. So 78% of the people in that study identify as coffee drinkers. And so, right. you know, you've got this, this bias. It, it's a diverse group, um, but we need to be really conscious of the fact that it's a sample out of the U.K., and it's, it's urban UK, so it's going to be more diverse than it might be if it was rural U, uh, United Kingdom. Right. But, you know, what the, the authors are trying to do is extrapolate into essentially third world. That isn't exactly the same thing. And so I would love to see this kind of a study, um, but using a population in Asia, in Southeast mm-hmm. Asia, in, in Africa, uh, I mean, even in different parts of, of Europe, I think you're going to find similar results but it's not going to be exactly the same. And so we need to be conscious of the fact that even though the sample size is really big, it's a sample size from a fairly small geographic area that that is not as genetically diverse as it could be if they had been able to do a study sort of globally. And and you, you know, we just don't have those resources at the moment. But I think that the study points at the need to look outside of the UK. I mean, look in North America, look in Canada, look in the U.S., look in, in Mexico, South America, and, and get a more diverse population and see if we see these same kind of correlations that we see in the UK study. In the meantime, uh, it's all the more reason to enjoy that second cup of coffee, Thomas, which I intend to do uh, right now. I appreciate uh, the opportunity to speak to you again, sir. It's always a blast to have you on the show, Thomas. And the, uh, the, the unraveling of the coffee mi- mystery continues. Thank you so much for, for contributing again today. Sterling, thank you for having me on. It's fantastic. This is Professor Thomas Merritt from the Department of Chemistry at Laurentian University in Sudbury. There's a new uh, survey out uh, uh, conducted by Angus Reed for the International Workplace Group that suggests the future of commuting to work may look very different in a post-pandemic world. Uh, what they're saying is a lot of people, uh, nearly a third of Canadians, want their commute to be less than 15 minutes. Uh, wishful thinking, or are we on to something here that perhaps the pandemic is taking us in a different direction? Here to talk about the survey is Wayne Berger from Toronto. Mr. Berger is CEO of the Americas for the company that commissioned the uh, study, the International Workplace Group. Wayne Berger, good morning. Good morning, Sterling. How are you? I'm very th- I'm very well, thank you, Wayne. Tell us, first of all, before we dive into the survey and this wishful thinking about 15-minute commutes, tell us about your company, which is headquartered in Switzerland and which provides flexible workplaces and solutions around the world. What does that mean? Yes, so uh, IWG is the world's largest provider of co-working and flex-based locations. Uh, Many of your listeners may know us from some of our more popular brands, most notably Regis and Spaces. And uh, we have roughly about 25 different locations in Vancouver and uh, in the Vancouver Lower Mainland where people have a chance to gather to be able to work, whether it's from Port Moody, downtown Vancouver, Victoria, right out to Langley. Right. And your, your company, therefore, the, the investment is that your company buys or leases or makes arrangements to have space, which you then uh, turn around and provide to smaller contractors, correct? 
Yeah, exactly. That's right. We uh, we traditionally operate in you know various different, uh, mostly commercial office space, and we uh, we open up and offer these different co working locations, and it actually provides space for a range of different organizations. So it could be your freelancers, your smart uh, your startups, or your scale ups, and but also I mean seventy percent of our business actually is linked to the Fortune 500 enterprise clients, so large organizations that look for ways to uh, reduce their their costs on their balance sheet and give their employees more flexibility from where they need to work. Well, and isn't that interesting, too, because, of course, one thing that the pandemic has caused almost everybody in business, no matter what kind, uh, to rethink, to, to take a look at the model and to see where improvements can be made and efficiencies can be found. And one thing that, and I'm this is just for your general conversation here, Wayne, one thing that w- we seem to be finding is that uh, in terms of rethinking the workplace, uh, there's a lot, there, there are going to be a lot of changes uh, from the perspective of employees but as I'm hearing more and more from employers, they uh, the desire to return to something resembling a traditional workplace model is very strong. Are you st- are you getting mm-hmm. that as well? Oh, I, absolutely. So what's interesting is, you know, we've all been living in this you know world of the pandemic over the last sixteen months, and and many people who can work from home have been working from home, and sure, I would yeah. say employers and employees everybody's missing the opportunity to get back together and gather in let's call it an office. But what's interesting is before the pandemic, over 50% of the world's workers were working from somewhere other than a traditional corporate headquarters for at Mm. least two to three days a week. Um, And then suddenly we drop into a pandemic and we all do the right thing from a civic minded and to help support health and safety. And we've been working from home, but these trends have already been moving forward. And I think what's really interesting is um, as employees, we're moving into this new renaissance and how, when, and where people will need to work. And what we're seeing most commonly is employers want their people back in an office. Right. But what's nice is the office is being redefined. So 77% of employers are looking to institute a flexible or hybrid working solution, which means They want their people back in, but it doesn't mean five days a week. So many employees are adopting a new model in which they're asking their employees to come into, let's call it their traditional corporate headquarters, maybe once a week or much more for a a purpose-driven need to bring people together, to brainstorm, to innovate, maybe to Mm -hmm. meet with their boss live, to gather with a team. But what's interesting now is the idea of getting in a car or hopping on you know, a SkyTrain, for example, to travel five days a week only for the other four to put your laptop and your phone down to conduct some head down work just mm-hmm. doesn't seem to make sense. So now what's happening is companies are instituting more of a choice where they're asking people to gather at the office, as I mentioned, maybe once a week, but then from there to work flexibly or work from another location that may make more sense for their employees, depending on what they have in store that day. I'm wondering also, though, uh, in, in terms again of of, of the boardroom and uh, where the mm-hmm. where the final decisions get made, uh, because we have the potential for hybrid models, which would reduce mm-hmm. probably the demand for floor space, just simply square footage. Yeah. Do you see going forward companies reducing their physical plant to some extent? Yes, one hundred percent. We are hearing this across all sectors, technology 
finance, the banking industry, um, right through to uh, right through to to different sectors as well, where companies are now looking at their real estate portfolio and they're mm-hmm. starting to reevaluate because the reality is the real estate portfolio is usually, if not the highest, it, it could be the second most costly element on a company's balance sheet. So two things are happening. One, they're, they're looking at reducing their space and many companies are going to do that through natural lease cycles, unless a company is in a severe level of distress. True, so that's yeah. going to happen over the next probably one to five years. You know, companies like HSBC has come out recently mentioning that they're going to reduce their space by upwards of 40% globally. Um, now, uh, now the other, the other, the other side of the coin is companies are not just looking at reducing, but they're looking at actually redesigning space as well. Because what they found is traditionally, not everybody's in an office. So more often than not, about 50% of the office was usually left underutilized. Mm-hmm, so what yeah. companies are looking at doing now is to say, look, let's take the space we need. Let's have, a, let's have our traditional location where we want people to come in when it makes sense. But let's make that space more desirable. So you're seeing more trends around hoteling where uh, companies are instituting technology and different processes where when workers come in for the time that they're, that they're due to come into or when they select to come into, they're actually selecting space they need. They'll basically sign out. Maybe it's private space, meeting space, collaboration space, maybe an office, all mm-hmm. depending on what they need that day. So hoteling has become a very big trend. And then what we're also seeing is just more collaboration space, more cafe type of experiences that people can return to because employees want an, an environment that frankly is desirable and that encourages the opportunity to get together when they happen to be in the office. So design and this shift towards reduction is happening. Interesting. I need to take a break just before we do, though, Wayne. This could uh, this 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 shift in in corporate strategy and even corporate thinking is definitely coming to you, isn't it? As companies perhaps decide to divest themselves of their real estate holdings in favor of uh, leasing uh, smaller uh, packages for office uh, purposes, that's playing right into your hands. You uh, your company uh, p- provides flexible workspaces for companies who uh, are redesigning the way they do their businesses. This is, this is definitely headed in your direction, isn't it? It's an exciting time. It's very opportunistic and we're seeing the demand continue to grow. And one of those big reasons why is because companies want to give their workers the ability to work from wherever they need to work. That's productive. And this whole notion on the 15 minute city is becoming more and more of a popular uh, notion, especially in a place like Vancouver, but a company can't afford to be able to have their own space in every single township, suburb, right. or stop on a SkyTrain line. So utilizing a company like Regis or Spaces gives them the ability to have complete flexibility and gives their ability to give their employees access to a full network of locations. Wayne Berger is on the line. Mr. Berger is the CEO of the Americas for the International Workplace Group, who recently commissioned the Angus Reid people to ask Canadians about their working preferences after COVID-19 restrictions lift. And I kind of facetiously going to the break there, Wayne said, the future of work, which, of course, could be as soon as Labor Day. Uh, Suddenly, though, we are seeing here in British Columbia on July 1st, next Thursday, phase three, Alberta goes to full open for summer on July 
July 1st. Restrictions are coming off all across the country. And I mean, it's uh, the vaccination rate still, of course, will determine our return to, quote, normal, which is going to take a while. But there's such pent up demand for some kind of return to something resembling normal, Wayne. I think we're going to see a lot of workplaces begin to reconvene very soon, don't you? I think what we're going to see, Sterling, is we're going to see workplaces reconvene, mainly in the lower mainland. But I think the downtown core is still going to be quite quiet until September. And I think one of the reasons why is I think many, many employers, I think they're doing a couple of really great things right right now. Number one, they're sitting down with their employees and they're asking their employees, what does return to work look like for you, ideally? And many employees are saying, we want to come back safely. And we want to make sure we have the right amount of space allocated that we can be productive. And also, we really enjoyed working from home. Mm -hmm. We don't want to work from home exclusively because, frankly, we miss each other. And many of us aren't completely set up to work from home effectively every single day. But they want the benefits of working closer to home. So what, what we're seeing from many of our clients in Vancouver specifically is we think return to an office downtown will really start to happen closer to exactly what you said before the break, which was which is after Labor Day. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, and then, but we're seeing significant acceleration in the lower mainland, specifically around Surrey, Langley, South Surrey, White Rock, Port Moody, Maple Ridge, um, we you know, Burnaby, of course. So it's interesting. It's it's two different elements. The people are returning to an office, but not every day, but they're returning right. to an office in the lower mainland, but the downtown's still pretty quiet. And I think part of it is just by nature, the fact that we all need to breathe after 16 months and, you know, enjoy, obviously, right, we're getting right now, which is a hot summer, um, and take that time with our families, get kids back into school, and then get back to what this new normal looks like. Indeed, uh, the survey identified some of the things that have come to be, uh, well, uh, rather our favorites uh, as a result of this work from home pivot that we many of us have been required to take. For example, a lot of people like the idea that there's more time to prepare healthy meals, more time to exercise. They're spending less money on clothing and transportation. And uh, also, as you mentioned, uh, you know, if, if you're a parent, and you're doing that working from home thing at the same time, you do ultimately end up with more time with your kids. Mm-hmm. It, it's been extraordinary. I mean, no doubt it's been a challenge during a pandemic, but the amount of time people have been able to capture back in their days to spend with their families, with uh, with different extracurricular items. And then, of course, in this case, as we start to reopen uh, heading into phase three with friends, has been remarkable. And, and I think what we're going to see is as we get out of a pandemic, the biggest theme of the next 10 years is going to be our commitment to the environment. And that's where the notion of the 15-minute city comes into play. People have yeah. loved these benefits. Health and wellness has been probably one of the most critical elements that we've focused on in the last 16 months. People love spending their time with their families and their friends and be able to invest time in other areas of their life. And you can imagine, I've got three kids. I know that my kids one day are going to turn to me and say, Dad, Tell me about the time they used to drive an hour and a half, maybe an hour each way to work. So two to three hours a day is just completely unproductive. And I think people have recognized that they can be as productive, if not more productive and more engaged working closer to home versus spending so much time trying to get to a 
quote unquote workplace. Yeah. So the benefits uh, have absolutely been strong. Right. And Wayne, I've literally got one minute left for your mm. comment for this, this finding. Please. If they're required to return to their workplaces five days a week after the pandemic ends, 29% of Canadians said they'd look for another job. Yeah. That's a pretty, pretty and, big number. And that will increase, Sterling. Um, there is a battle for talent and workers will leave companies who do not institute a flex space strategy. That is absolutely the case 77 percent of companies are instituting flex but those 23 that aren't they're going to lose not just their best talent but they're just going to lose workers across the board and for those companies that haven't already taken the time to do what you're suggesting many already are to sit down with their employee group and say okay we're we're going to things have changed and they're going to stay changed what kind of changes do you like and what kind of changes don't you like and have those conversations and if you're not having them now your your risk of losing those people is even higher absolutely Wayne Berger, thanks for this. Great to have you on the program this morning. Fascinating survey. And, of course, the future of work is almost upon us. So we'll see how this rolls out. And I look forward to the opportunity to checking in with you and, and seeing how, th- how you rate our progress as we go forward. Look forward to it as well, Sterling. Thank you so much to you and your listeners. Uh, great to have you with us. There's Wayne Berger, CEO of the Americas for the International Workplace Group. Money continues to be the biggest source of stress for Canadians. For 37% of British Columbians, it's led to health issues, the highest rate in the country. This finding from the folks at BDO First Call Debt Solutions. And from BDO, Jennifer McCracken is back with us. Jennifer is a senior manager and licensed insolvency trustee with BDO Canada. Jennifer, welcome back and good morning. Good morning, Sterling. So tell us a bit, uh, I want to do the, uh, I went to the website and by way of preparing for you, because you don't ever have Jennifer on your show without having done a lot of homework. And one of the things that I found on your website is this uh, whole business of doing a mid-year financial checkup in eight simple steps. And here we are almost precisely at mid-year, literally days away from mid-year. And I'd like to get to that in a second, Jennifer, if you don't mind. But first of all, where did you get this number? 37% of British Columbians so anxious about money issues, it's affecting their health. Well, there was a 2021 financial stress index conducted. And basically, you know, amidst this uh, pandemic, we have this health crisis, we're still finding that finance is a prevailing issue in people's lives. So finance um, and stress around money was reported as the number one stress in people's lives. And in BC, many of the people reported that it has been leading to health issues and issues sure. in other aspects of their lives. So certainly this financial checkup that uh, we're going to talk about uh, couldn't come at a better time based on the survey results. And of course, health issues, you know, and as we're learning, and again, more the more uh, the time this takes to to uh, unfold for us all, we're, we're learning to understand that health issues very much, especially when it comes to, to worries and, and health issues can be mental health, uh, which, of course, adversely affect one's physical health. But if you're worried about money and you're stressed out about, you know, phone calls and angry letters and all of that stuff, uh, life isn't very good. And, and it definitely starts starts to wear and uh, it affects both physical and mental well-being doesn't it Jennifer it absolutely does and and one thing is it it seems to impact sleep right a lot of Canadians report that they're losing sleep they're lacking sleep they're not sleeping well 
and it, it starts to sort of permeate other parts of their lives. So whether it's their relationships, their children, their work, um, the survey, you're precisely right. It did actually hit on the fact that um, it, people also report it leads to mental health issues, anxiety, um, and even substance abuse. So certainly um, we cannot underestimate how our financial lives are just very much intertwined with our health and with everything else that we're doing. And if we're not managing our finances properly or we have stress associated with it, we know that our lives will improve if we take those steps to deal with whatever the financial issue or the financial crisis is. And mm-hmm. um, I really hope anyone who's listening that is feeling this way um, really takes those steps to resolve it because they're going to see the other parts of their lives improve. And I can tell you, I certainly see in my practice when individuals go through a process to manage their debt, it, it always has a very significant positive impact on other parts of their lives as well. Indeed. And, and of course, and, and we'll get to this list in, in just a couple of minutes, but Jennifer, the big deal and the toughest hurdle to, to get over for many is, is that all-important first meeting. Uh, it's the understanding is already acute. I'm in a big financial hole. I'm in a bloody mess, in fact. But I, I'm, I'm kind of embarrassed about it. You know, I'm smarter. I'm smarter than this. I don't need to be in this mess, but here I am anyway. And, you know, and, and to sit down and admit failure to a professional who may or may not wag their finger at me and give me a lecture for being such an idiot, all of that stuff. I just, I don't think I can handle that. And at the same time, you're in such a financial pickle. It's, it's pulling you apart already. It's the summoning and it really is. uh, And it sounds odd, but it really is summoning the courage to make that phone call. I couldn't agree with you more, Sterling. And, And that's why we say at BDO, it's BDO first call debt solutions, because we know how difficult it is to make that call. You're right. There's an enormous amount of shame and embarrassment that people feel. Um, Of course, we, we don't, we would never judge. And the reality is for a lot of individuals, the reason they have debt, it probably actually stems from significant other life issues, whether sure. it's a death in the family, a loss. So, you know, there's probably all these things that have happened in your life that the ripple effect of it led to debt. It, it, you know, you probably could get your financial skills your financial literacy up. But really, there was probably a lot of other things going on that led to the debt. So there really isn't, if you should not feel ashamed or embarrassed about your situation. Really, the, the goal is, look, I'm having financial problems. I need to find a solution. I'm going to call a professional who's going to walk me through what I can do. And it's really taking hold and taking control and saying, I'm going to be part of the solution and I'm going to deal with this situation because I know my life will improve. And that's really why we encourage folks to sort of put aside the anxiety, embarrassment, make the call. I assure you people will feel better after they've talked to a licensed insolvency trustee, walk through their options. They're going to sleep better. They're going to feel better because they'll have the information at their fingertips. They'll know what they can do to deal with their situation and make their life better. And the real bonus part about all of this too, Jennifer, is the fact that that uh, that critical first call to a professional like yourself is free. Absolutely. And for a lot of people, it's uh, we, I really enjoy giving uh, people advice around budgeting. There's lots of different tips we can give people, even just in that first meeting, um, even if they don't need to do something more significant like a proposal or bankruptcy, you are going to leave mm-hmm. the meeting having resources and information available to you to deal with whatever the financial issues that you have in, you know, in your life at that point. 
Indeed. So let's go now to this. uh, Here we are. The middle of 2021 comes up next Thursday on July 1st. So we are literally at the mid-year point of this uh, of this 2021 oddball year that it is. And you have how to do a mid-year financial checkup in eight simple steps. What's step one, Jennifer? So what you want to do is measure what your basically what your net worth is. So you want to take um, a, a calculator and, and total up what are your assets, what's the value of your assets that you have, and what is the type of you know, debt that you have. So whether you have secured debt, like say a, a mortgage over a property, you want to total up any of the secured debt, unsecured debt, and you do want to measure what is your net worth. So if you total up the value of your assets, and then you deduct the amount that you owe the debt, what is, what is the figure there? So obviously individuals would want to work towards having a very uh, strong and positive net worth. So that would be the first step that we recommend. Okay, so uh, secured debt is, is a mortgage, as you said. What is unsecured debt? What, what, says, what sort of debts are we talking about there? be if an individual has a line of credit, um, okay. any type of credit card debt. Um, I do meet folks that sometimes um, owe to payday loan lenders, although we do mm-hmm. caution folks from, from taking on high interest debt. Uh, but typically an unsecured debt would be a line of credit or a credit card um, gotcha. facility. Okay. So you take, you take and you write down, it's, it's just two columns, your, your, what you owe and what you own. So there, there's, there's your first, step, at least step one, at least having a sense of what's going on. What's step two? Is review and revise your financial goals. So um, we do encourage, in all my counseling sessions, we talk about uh, short-term goals or medium-term goals, long-term goals. So you want to sit down and write down what are my financial goals. We certainly recommend um, individuals also be budgeting on a monthly basis so that they can measure whether or not they're achieving those goals. Um, so you want to basically look at what were your previous goals? Did you meet them? And do you have your goals changed? So are you going to revise your goals? So some people, for instance, could have a goal about paying down debt. Sure. If they've been able to achieve that goal, maybe now when they're sitting down and doing this review, their goal is, is putting more money into an emergency fund because they're not going to be spending as much on um, the debt repayment or it could be saving for retirement. So mm-hmm. setting those financial goals, having them be measurable, attainable, realistic, have a timeline associated with those goals, um, that would be what we'd recommend for that particular step. Okay, I need to take a break here, Jennifer, but just before we go, in terms of identifying goals and objectives and that kind of thing, given the fact that we've all been kind of cooped up for 15, 16 months, et cetera, a goal, an objective to lighten up, have a little fun, and maybe, you know, take a vacation is legit and ought to be put on that list, right? I, I would agree with you. So nothing wrong with budgeting for fun. No, that, absolutely. We should have this on our, our, our webpage here. <laughs> Jennifer McCracken is back with us from BDO First Call Debt Solutions. Jennifer is a senior manager and licensed insolvency trustee. And given the fact that the middle of 2021 is simply a matter of two or three days away, we're doing the mid-year financial checkup in eight simple steps. You can follow along if you want on the BDO website, which is debtsolutions.bdo.ca. And Jennifer, we're at step three, which at the halfway point of the year is kind of practical. It suggests we plan for the rest of the year. 
And that's correct, Sterling, because a lot of individuals have unexpected expenses or they have irregular expenses. So whether it's the summer vacation, children's expenses for school. So you do want to put a plan in place as to what you expect to spend for those activities and certainly set aside the money so that you have it on hand so you can cover those expenses. You don't want to find that you don't have the money available and that you're using credit to cover these types of expenses. Okay, so again, that uh, you look ahead till uh, to the end of the year, and you can't anticipate everything. I mean, who among us anticipated the pandemic? For crying out loud, some things just sort of life just sort of gets in the way sometimes. But there are things that we can pretty safely predict to be coming up, aren't there? Yes, there are, and and your comment about the pandemic is actually uh, quite timely in the sense that it highlights the fact that a lot of Canadians report that they don't have savings that they Mm -hmm. regret that they haven't saved a lot and they don't have an emergency fund. So that would be one of the reasons to also put in your goals as part of your budget that you set aside just a slush fund, an emergency fund to deal with something unexpected. Um, This would be different than the planned expense that may be irregular or only come up a few times a year. So the emergency fund is key to deal with something very unexpected and unpredictable like the pandemic. Indeed. And if there isn't one uh, so far in your life, it, it, you can, it's never too late to start one, is there? That's right. And, and setting aside uh, the money um, where you have a separate bank account, maybe you make it a little bit more difficult to access the funds. Yeah. You've know, you, you got to sort of assess how, how good are you at sort of looking at a bank balance and seeing money there. If you're the type that you're going to want to spend it because it's in the account, get creative with it. Find a way that you can set the money aside, that you kind of don't see it, and that it's there when you need it. Got it. Now, what's step four? We'll check on your debt. So um, you've already gone through the step of assessing your net worth. So you do you yep. know, already know what your debts are. So if you do have debt, what is your plan to pay it back? There's different methods. Um, you could tackle the high interest accounts first. You can tackle the smaller accounts first. Um, you also want to assess in respect of debt, are you using credit on a monthly basis to cover your basic living expenses? Has your debt grown from last year? Did you have a debt repayment plan in place and you haven't met it? So there's going to be, this piece could take a little bit more time. And this is a piece that a lot of individuals uh, feel that debt is normal. They're used to living with debt. So Mm -hmm. um, this would also be the the time that if you haven't been able to tackle the debt or you're finding you're using credit on a monthly basis, you're going into debt further and further, that it would also be wise to seek out the advice of a licensed insolvency trustee if you're finding this piece of your financial plan still is not working. Okay, and uh, let's just keep going on down the list, and I'll come back to a couple of things. But step five. So that would be to refresh your budget if you can. So for, as we were talking about with the pandemic, uh, nobody would have anticipated that this would have happened, and it had significant impacts to people's lives, whether it was loss of employment, reduction of income. So the budget you set last year probably isn't working for this year uh, with respect to the pandemic. So we do encourage folks to put that budget together If you can review it monthly, that's ideal, but if not, at least quarterly. And you want to assess, last year's budget probably didn't work for me, so now I'm going to put one together now. Look at what you're actually spending right now, and then put a plan in place to to basically adjust or change any expenses, any columns that are too high. And you want to assess, once you've put that budget in place, you want to be measuring, am I achieving all of the line items in the budget that I have planned? Okay, so you've refreshed your budget, and that's step five. What's next, then? You want to check your credit score. So basically, um, all Canadians have access to their credit report. So that would be through Equifax and through TransUnion. And you are able to actually request uh, what your credit score is. So if your credit score is on the lower end, it probably means that there's some issues 
with how you're using credit that's available to you. You could have debt issues. If it's at the higher end of the, of the score, then it's showing that you are using debt wisely, your your, your credit wisely rather, you're paying um, your, your payments as needed, you know, making sure that you have a high credit score is actually going to allow you to have access to lower interest rates when you're borrowing. Right, so, sure. And there's lots of credit products available that help improve your credit score if you find that you do have a low credit score. Jennifer, what's a typical, what's an acceptable okay credit score number? Well, typically <clears throat> anything around the 800 range is, is a strong score. Uh, 900 is the top end of the score. Right. <clears throat> Sorry, Sterling, I have a tick on my throat here. Um, and so if you have a credit score on the lower end, say at 600, that's a sign that um, you are having issues with debt and with credit. Okay, so now here's, here's another thing. A lot of Canadians don't know that uh, it doesn't cost anything to check your credit score, and you should do it at least how often? At least once a year, once every six months? Uh, what happens if you go to check your score and find out information is wrong about you? Well, you do have the ability to uh, send in requests to the credit bureaus to alter and adjust any errors or omissions on your credit report. So definitely uh, checking it once a year directly with the bureau would be advisable. There's also free credit products like financial uh, tech tools through BorrowWell. Um, that you can actually go in and, and just put it on your phone. Um, credit Karma is another one. So you can go in and just get sort of a soft check of your credit score for free through those types of credit products. And a lot of my clients do that on a monthly basis um, and just to get a, a measure of where they're at. And you will see changes in your credit score um, on a month-to-month basis. So there's, there's lots of ways that you can get that information and really integrate it into your financial life. Okay, so checking your credit score, a very important step to take is number six. What's next, Jennifer? Uh, Check your tax withholding. So we know that a lot of individuals were receiving CERB. Uh, There's some people that have multiple employers and maybe they're not being taxed properly. So you do want to measure if you routinely have a tax debt when you file your income tax return, you should be setting aside money so you have that on hand to pay the tax bill when you file your tax return. Right. Uh, now, of course, if you just have a, a, a single job where your employer withholds all the taxes uh, and at the end of the year, uh, you've pretty much paid what you were, what you were supposed to owe. That's one uh, scenario. But a lot of people in this gig economy, Jennifer, work for themselves and, and uh, get money from various sources. And the tax calculations is all their problem, right? <laughs> That's right. So individuals that are self-employed absolutely need to be setting aside money uh, to deal with any tax debt. So certainly if you have an accountant or bookkeeper, they could provide some assistance to you for what amount you should set aside every year. One thing you could do if your income remains relatively stable is you just measure what was your tax debt last year. What did you owe when you filed your taxes? Divide that by 12, and that is the monthly amount that you should set aside each month to pay for your income taxes. You also can make installments directly to the CRA, And I would encourage folks to do that. So if you pay too much, the worst case scenario is you get a refund when you file your tax return at the end of the year. Okay. And as we complete our eight-step mid-year financial checkup, what's the last step to take? Well, this is the emergency fund that you and I have been talking about. So setting up an emergency fund um, so that it's there to deal with the unexpected, like the pandemic, Um, You could measure, say, three to six months worth of living expenses, and that would be really important to to, to set that up as soon as possible, and you would want to really stick to whatever amount you're saving to really be rigid about it, not spend the emergency fund on something during the, the months. If you've said, I'm going to set aside $200 a month, do that. You need that money there, and don't touch it. So let it grow, and at the end of the year, you will be able to tick that box that you met that goal in, in your financial plan.
Right. And if you would like to review this, uh, it's very e- easy to find, friends. It's on the uh, BDO website, It's which is debtsolutions.bdo.ca. Just look up how to do a mid-year financial checkup in eight simple steps, as done by Jennifer McCracken on CKNW on Sunday morning. Jennifer, always a pleasure. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Jennifer McCracken from BDO First Call Debt Solutions. It is uh, a great pleasure that I have to uh, welcome our first guest. Let me just quote a paragraph from a recent column. If you have any interest in federal politics, the end of the pandemic can't come soon enough. For over a year, Canadians have been governed by Zoom democracy, virtual question periods, committees, and press conferences. It's not like we had many options as three waves of COVID-19 rolled across the country. But as this sorry session of Parliament comes to a sorry close, it's hopefully a situation Canada will not have to repeat. That's the opening paragraph in a recent column written by Tasha Carradine entitled, Trudeau will probably miss our unaccountable pandemic Parliament. National Post columnist Tasha Carradine joins us now. Tasha, good morning and welcome. Well, thank you. Good morning to you as well. Well, it's great to have you with us. Why uh, this? Uh, I love the uh, the opening, by the way. Uh, so, why uh, is the, is this uh, sorry session of Parliament? Uh, why should we be rejoicing that it's over? Well, partly because I think uh, Zoom fatigue has gotten to our politicians as well, as you mentioned in that opening paragraph that I um, that I had written. Um, there's a sense that Parliament's been less accountable because you have a situation where people are not face-to-face. And I think many workplaces, you know, that can work, but when you have question period with one person on Zoom and one person in the room, it doesn't really have the same feeling of holding people to account. And in addition to that, I think the government knew that no party really wanted an election. There was no real way to be held accountable because they were not going to be defeated in confidence votes. There was no one who was going to provoke an election over the budget or other things because people didn't want a Zoom election. (laughs) So the government acted much more like a majority than a minority in the last session. And and by the way, the subheader on on the column that I quoted from is, it's clear that the liberals have been paving the way for months now. One dose summer, two dose writ. So the whole plan, as you see it, is uh, getting the herd vaccinated up to that magic 70% plus number and then call an election. I think so. And I think that, you know, Canadians want to have the freedom to be out and live their lives again, election or not. But I think the government sort of banked on the fact that once people were vaccinated, it would be easier to have that vote. They'd also be in a great and buoyant mood. Um, So that's I think the consensus is really I'm not the only one saying this, that that's where we're heading an election, either very late summer or in the early fall. When people have been vaccinated, campaigns can can take place in a semi normal fashion and there'll be the sense of optimism, economic recovery, which people will say, oh, well, you know, the government got us through this. At least that's the government's pitch, I think. So mm-hmm. let's return them to office. Well, you know, the I'm thinking and have maintained for many months now, the if the best and most effective counterpunch to the liberals claim of of having, you know, gotten us through all of this, and they did uh, by hook or by crook, I, I think that there could be a strong case made by the conservatives, particularly for something called competent management, something we haven't seen a great deal of during all of this crisis. We've seen management of one description or another, Tasha, but their uh, competency hasn't necessarily been uh, at the top of the pile uh, on a daily basis, particularly. 
No, and this is where we've seen, in particular with uh, budget items, I think there's, in fact, even $41 billion of spending that wasn't even subject to any kind of scrutiny. That was the last um, number that that we had. Uh, We also know that um, the uh, Office of the Parliamentary Budget Officer says that the budget projections are out of whack. Um, that the deficits that have been run up, the spending is going to put us into a deficit position far longer than the Liberals have said. Mm-hmm. So I think the management, yes, I mean, yes, we needed to spend money to alleviate this crisis, particularly in the early stages when there was a lot of unknowns. We wanted people to stay home, um, and you had to pay them to do that. I mean, CERB was designed to keep people you know, out of harm's way when they sure. couldn't work because it was unsafe. But as the pandemic progressed, um, a lot of these payments, a lot of things, the government and their budget, too, they, they decided to create programs that they said had to do with the pandemic. Um, National child care is one that will carry a very big price tag. We don't know how that money is even going to be spent. It's just there. Um, and it's a sense that that almost that, you know, they've used this situation to create programs that they've they would have not been able to do otherwise, um, justifying it that way. So, yes, in terms of management and decision-making, we get the sense that the government has used the situation to advantage. There has not been competent management in the way that we would like oversight, uh, you know, uh, more scrutiny by the House, and also just, uh, like you said, management of what's needed when. Um, mm-hmm. So I think the Conservatives could make that case. But, I mean, it's, they have to make it. They can't simply say it was bad management. They have to offer an alternative. Oh, no kidding. And Aaron O'Toole has, has even said as recently as just a couple of days ago, so far, he has he is at a decided disadvantage in terms of uh, public. Well, uh, there are lots of Canadians who, who wouldn't recognize him if he walked up to them and shook him by the hand. And, and uh, the fact is that the prime minister has had absolutely unfettered access to the airwaves of the country for about a year and a half, whenever he wants. Uh, Mr. O'Toole, uh, you know, so far, he's uh, he's zooming to groups across the country. Now, as you said, Tasha, things are going to improve. July 1st is just a few days away. Um, we will have loosened restrictions and small in-person meetings are already going to be allowed. And by the time the election campaign unfolds, presumably in October, we should be at a point where we can have rallies of one description or another. Do you agree? Um, yeah, I think I still would be nervous about going to a rally uh, per se, especially with the variants out there. So, but I think that having gatherings, having um, the ability to see, like you said, more than a few people at a time, and definitely right. not just over Zoom, is going to make things feel more normal um, for politicians as well. Um, I think Aaron O'Toole, though, you're right. His his biggest challenge is is being known, is getting to be that household name. And to be also a household name with uh, a vision, because right. people may know if he's leader of concert. What, what does that? What does that mean? What do they stand for? So that alternative vision, as we come out of the pandemic, I think the conservatives have to put forward. And also, I think the ethics piece is important. There've been a lot of ethical failures, a lot of sense that the government's just been doing what they want. I think particularly around the um, sexual assault and uh, misconduct allegations in the military. Right. Uh, sense that things haven't been properly investigated. I mean. This is a this is a big ethical lapse um, that that has that inquiry was basically shut down uh, before Parliament left. And so I think that you know um, they have to account for those things too. No question about it. And of course, regardless of whether they were uh, able to dance uh, at the committee level, uh, they certainly got blindsided and a, and a good blistering 
uh, report from Gregory Lick, the military ombudsman, just a few days ago, Tasha, that was, uh, first of all, uh, absolutely necessary and uh, of something that you could actually hear them squirming as he was reading his report, and, and, and justifiably so. You're right, they've completely dropped the ball on the military file, and, and so their solution, of course, classic stuff, uh, is hire another retired Supreme Court judge to write yet another report. They ignored the last one for 10 years, so let's write another one. That'll kick the can down the road well past the election date, and during the election campaign, they can say, look, we know, we know we're, we're a little uh, behind the eight ball here on this military thing, but we've got Madam Justice Arbour, and boy, she's going to set everything right, and we'll get it done. Just Just vote for us, and we'll get it done. That, you can hear it already. Yeah, you can. And it also it flies in the face of their feminist credentials, which they've been burnishing since, you know, even before Justin Trudeau took office. Um, I mean, this involves women who were serving to, ser- to serve our country, and they were let down by their government, and they're still being let down. Mm-hmm. Um, and yes, uh, just, you know, another report is just a way to move that ball, move that needle further away. But it has to be raised because it is yet another example of how the government says one thing, and they do another. Um, the same sort of situation you would say with Jody Wilson-Raybould, right. uh, which we've sort of forgotten about. You know, who talks about that anymore? But it's extremely important to remember that two of the strongest female cabinet ministers got sidelined by this government when they, when they talk about, you know, promoting and supporting women. Um, it's, it's very disturbing. You talk in your column also about the the current government behaving more like a majority government than a minority one, and I couldn't agree more. Because I suppose they know they've got pretty much the block in their back pocket when it comes to getting things done legislatively, and if the block fails them, the NDP would certainly shore them up. So they have really quite behaved like they are in a majority position, haven't they? Yeah, they have. I mean, they rammed through the budget bill, um, which was an omnibus. Uh, there were all sorts of things in there. They shut down debate on Bill C-10 um, on freedom of speech. And they're putting forth more legislation now uh, in terms of hate speech that is many people are, are, you know, are now realizing. This is a very, very restrictive position to take. Um, they tabled changes to the Official Languages Act, which the bloc even sort of scoffed at because they said, well, you know, if they... If they um, come back in the fall, the real changes will look nothing like this, but the ones they put forward are very, very strong in protecting French and Quebec, and they're mm-hmm. just basically electioneering, speaking to a Quebec audience. But, yes, they, they've just been acting and doing things as though they were in a majority position, precisely because no one wanted a pandemic election. Um, so, you know, now they're going to probably they'll pull the trigger themselves. They're not going to have the opposition pull the trigger, and right. Trudeau hinted at it in a speech from um, the last speech that he gave, saying Parliament's dysfunctional. Well, when problem is dysfunctional, what do you do? You call an election. <laughs> right. Well, it, it certainly appears inevitable. I'm saying October. Do you agree? I think October as well. I think that um, there's a sense that they want they want the vaccines to be in people's arms. They want them to have that sense of normality, kids back in school, this kind of thing. So if they had it in October, they'd be calling it either last week of August or first week of September. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and then we just we go to the polls then before before the winter, definitely. Joined on the line from Toronto by National Post columnist Tasha Carradine. And Tasha, it's the column you wrote actually a couple of weeks ago that caught my attention. I, I, I flagged it and, and stuck it in on, on my little pin board. And I've read it about, I'm thinking, probably 13, 14 times since I first read it. It's entitled... Yeah, a lot of the, clicks, 
thank you. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, you're, yeah, no kidding. The push to cancel Canada Day misunderstands that our flawed nation is still worth celebrating is the, is the headline. And let me just quote one line. Canceling the day that recognizes Canada creation would be a mistake. Cancellation does not beget reconciliation. It sows anger not atonement. It drives underground the very feelings of division it seeks to destroy, instead of exposing them to the light of day, rooting them out, and moving forward. Powerful stuff. Uh, the city of Victoria, many other communities here in British Columbia have decided to cancel Canada Day. Where you are in Ontario, is there a similar move? Are there communities large and small across Ontario that are doing the same thing, Tasha? Um, I will confess, I haven't paid attention today to see if that's happened. I know in Manitoba, I've been following the news, um, in New Brunswick, there have been similar calls and some cities have decided to, uh, but it wouldn't surprise me if there were. Um, I think that there are obviously, and now with the discovery of the graves of the, the unmarked graves at Merivale School, um, you know, over 700 children, yes. uh, who died as a result of the residential school system at just one place, I think that, uh, you know, people are incensed. They are upset. They are angry. They want justice. They want, and they, I believe they also want reconciliation. And that's why I don't think canceling Canada Day celebrations is a way to do that because it implies that our country is some sort of unsalvageable place um, that we should be ashamed of and we shouldn't recognize where, as I point out in my column, we have done some amazing things with this nation. We have, we have done some terrible things, yes. Um, show me a nation on earth that hasn't, unfortunately. Right. Uh, but the point is that if you want to draw from the good to repair those relationships, you don't ignore that good. Um, you know, we've stood against apartheid. Uh, we have fought in two world wars against fascism, against tyranny. We have welcomed immigrants to our country who needed a place where fleeing oppression. Um, we have stood for those values time and time again. We have to stand mm-hmm. for them within our own borders. This is true. We have to do a far better job of that. But the point is we have that ability to draw on those things, and that's what you celebrate on Canada Day. Those are the values that you know we honor in our charter. And to say we're not going to celebrate at all because of what we have found, I think, is a mistake, as opposed to saying, you know, let's learn, let's do better, and move forward together. One thing you don't see a lot of in Canada anywhere these days, or frankly at any time in our history, is a lineup of people waiting to leave. What you do see today at any Canadian embassy or consulate anywhere in the world is a lineup of people who want to come here. That would suggest something to you, wouldn't it? It would. I've been reading, though, in, in um, there was a column recently in the Toronto Star of uh, immigrants who say that, you know, had they known, they, they may not have one said, should I even be here? Um, that they were not aware of the history of the displacement and uh, the deaths and killings of Indigenous people as, you know, when they were presented with what was Canada, where do you want to live, and they chose this country um, because they think it stands for those values, and it still does. But, and that's my point, is that um, if they were given an incomplete picture, as you say, would they have not come here? I doubt it. I doubt right. it because um, the situation they were facing was, 10 times worse. You look at what's happening in other nations around the world today, um, the genocide of the Uyghurs in China, for example, mm-hmm. it's horrendous. It is horrendous. And it is, it's, you know, it's not a question of scale. It's not a question of, of you know, this person is more important or that group is more important. Yes, Canada has to answer for what it did to Indigenous people. But at the same time, um, you know, we, our nation 
we're all living here together. Um, no one's leaving, as you put it, and no one's lining up to leave. So let's find a way to make that, draw from those values and do better and not just negate what our country is at, is about. Mm-hmm. Well, you talk about in the column, you say, like cancellation, rejecting Canada as an illegitimate state is not a path to reconciliation. It's impossible to have a nation to nation conversation unless all actors accept the legitimacy of each other's roles and voices. Uh, and that's uh, and then you point you go on to point out that that's the kind of relationship or conversation Canada has been having with Quebec for about 154 years. Yes. Um, I live that conversation. I'm from Montreal originally, and um, for 40 years, uh, from ni- my birthday, 1970, my birthday I was actually on Friday, so <laughs> it's close to home, um, from 1970 to the end of the century and into the very beginning, um, you know, we, we went through in Quebec two referenda, the election repeatedly of a government whose mission it was to break away from the Canadian nation, constant right. conversations about this. This was, mm-hmm. you know, that reconciliation. I mean, you talk to Francophones, especially at that time, and they saw the English as oppressors, just as the Indigenous people say today. It's like, you oppressed me, you kept me down, you took my language, you refused to allow me to, you know, get a loan for a business. A lot of very basic things, and I heard this mm-hmm. stuff, you know, from friends. Their parents had these stories, um, Francophones in Quebec. It was a very visceral thing. And that sense of oppression um, fueled this movement and the movement became politicized. And I think what's interesting is you see Quebec, it affirmed itself. Yes, um, a lot of Anglophones left. It was a very difficult time. And mm-hmm. I would say rules were, you know, rights were breached. Absolutely, 100%. At the end of the day, though, there was a peaceful resolution of living together because the recognition was it is better for everyone to find a way to live together than to break away and be apart. And I, I really do believe it's going to take a very long time for us to find that path with uh, Indigenous communities in, in Canada, definitely, and Indigenous nations, so no question. But that is, to me, the path. It is not a path of confrontation. It's a path of political resiliation and reconciliation, finding a way to have voices recognized. And, right. you know, people talk of third orders of government. They talk about all sorts of things. I've been hearing these conversations for a long time, too. But now I think it's at a point where we got got to say, okay, we've got to figure something out. Because you can't have more blockades. I mean, you think back to the beginning of the pandemic. Before the pandemic, our country was gripped in a massive crisis of blockades. That's of right. Yeah. Lines and, you know, we cannot live that movie again. Neither can Indigenous people. It doesn't help them either. So, yeah, um, we have to find a way forward. Uh, Tasha, thanks very much. Let me just Let me just read this. On July 1st, this July 1st, we're all free to observe Canada Day or not in the manner of our choosing. It can be a day of celebration, of hope, of thanks, of family. It can be a moment of reflection, of remembrance, of sorrow. It can be a vow to take the best of the past and move forward into the future. It can be a day of reconciliation. But one thing it should not be is cancelled. That's Tasha Carradin joining us from Toronto. Thanks for this, Tasha. Happy Canada Day to you. Thank you. Happy Canada Day. It's gardening time on CKNW Weekend Mornings and hosting the half hour once again, Mr. Brian Minter. Brian, good morning. Welcome back. Well, Sterling, good morning. And I just thank you so much for initiating this because the the heat uh, and the stress on plants right now and the potential loss of so many plants that we really value in our garden is very concerning. So your timing is absolutely wonderful. Thank you. 
Well, it's a pleasure to have you back, Brian. And just give me a second uh, to have uh, to ask Julie, please, to open up the phone lines right now. Might as well get right to it. 604-280-9898. 604-280-9898. If you have a question, a gardening question of any kind for Brian Minter, uh, jump on the phone board and we'll get you into the program. Brian, you've written recently about water conservation and that your timing couldn't have been better. Talk to us a little bit about uh, the, the, the heat, the extreme heat, water conservation, and what we all can do uh, over the next week or so with our, our gardens. And uh, we have to compliment, uh, first of all, the, the folks of the Greater Vancouver Regional District uh, in doing a little research uh, for that article. Uh, they have actually been consuming per person less water. Uh, I think that's probably unique in the world, <laughs> certainly in Canada. So that that's a really good sign. And I think the thing is, uh, we use water for so many different purposes. Uh, probably drinking is the, the number one issue right now. Uh, but uh, it, it just looking at how we use water around our homes and how to be more efficient with that. But uh, as we get into this type of weather, starting, it seems that over 50% of the water we do use is, uh, when we do have a garden to look after, is out in the garden. And uh, people say, well, that's, that's a bad thing. Well, actually keeping plants alive, uh, allowing us to have food in our gardens, uh, allowing us to surround ourselves with color and keep trees alive, uh, especially, you know, at this particular time when they're under such great stress, uh, the carbon sequestering, the oxygen they produce, there, there's, it's really important that we do get water in the right locations. And I think certainly the, the question that you're probably asking is, when we do water outside, we need to be very thoughtful about how we use it and where we use it and how often we use it. And that's really the, the, the bigger issue. Uh, just a couple of things. Number okay. one is getting it to the root zone of our plants. You don't need to have a sprinkler that sprays water up in the air and evaporates and it's gone. Uh, try and use soaker hoses and drip systems on our containers and baskets and trees and shrubs where the water actually goes to the root zone. The second thing is when we do water, allow enough time for that water to penetrate into the soil down to the roots. Often we water the surface that it doesn't get down there. It doesn't help at all. Right. Uh, and, uh, and the other thing, too, is uh, too much water is just as bad as not enough. Particularly with containers, we're finding so many people are watering so much sterling that they're rotting the roots off the plants. So the, the operative thing is really give it a good, thorough drink and then let it dry out. That's really the, the key for most things. So and just the temptation, water, Brian. Uh, the temptation, as you well know, under these circumstances, especially if you're out there in the hot sun with the hose or whatever, is to just water the blazes out of them. Because, <laughs> look, you know, if I feel as dried out and, and look at the ground, it's bone dry. And so the tendency would be, I think, if anything, to sort of overdo it, don't you? And, and that is that is it, uh, particularly with lawns and so on. And, uh, you know, a, a thorough, deep watering once or twice a week is more important than watering a little bit every day. And I find a lot of people are the, the, the little bit every day thing, and that really does more harm than good. It keeps your roots up uh, where it's drying up more quickly and uh, instead of getting them down where they should be. So, and, and one, one last quickie, uh, Sterling, uh, you know, when you put something on the end of your hose uh, to disperse the water, there's called water breakers that uh, the, the whole industry uh, in, uses, and that water breaker has four to a hundred to 1,000 holes, and my goodness, it's very good at distributing the water, so when you do water, uh, you're getting a more thorough soil penetration on baskets and containers, so just little things like that, uh, I think, make a huge difference. 
Uh, interesting, you know, you and I were talking when we started doing this uh, a, a few months back, how the pandemic has allowed many, many Canadians to, uh, first of all, have the time, Brian, uh, to to rediscover, in many cases, gardening, and in some cases, for the very first time, uh, people have, have, have come around to enjoy it. There are more and more Canadians uh, doing gardening now than ever before, but it's really interesting. I saw a survey from our friends at Research Company. Here's the breakdown that Mario Canseco had. Uh, Canadian one in four Canadian home gardeners, that's about 27% of us, Brian, say those folks mostly grow plants for consumption. A larger proportion, about almost 40%, say they grow or cultivate plants at home mostly for ornamental purposes. They like the way they look. And one-third, the 34% that I'm in, uh, equally interested in both. Yes, pretty flowers and stuff you can eat. So a practic- garden- gardening does have a wonderful practical aspect to it, doesn't it? Oh, it does, uh, from from so many different uh, aspects. Uh, uh, we have a connection ever since, uh, you know, humans are in this earth to, to green plants and so on. And so, so many years we've gotten away from that. And I love the millennial, millennial generation because they're very concerned about nature, uh, more concerned about plants and, and growing them and uh, having them as a surround around their, their children and family. It, it's just a, a wonderful thing that's taking place. And one interesting, uh, I think those are very accurate uh, statistics yeah. uh, verified by our industry. Uh, but it seems that in terms of people who are new to gardening, uh, the prediction is that 80% will continue uh, to do that. And, and that's a very encouraging sign. Absolutely. Let's uh, include some callers in our conversation here, as we did open the phone lines early, and we'll start right here in Vancouver. Bill, good morning. Good morning, uh, Brian, and and I have an interesting question. Uh, a couple of years ago, I I was eating apricot and threw a pit into the the growth the garden, and now it's ten feet tall. It's <laughs> wonderful, Bill. Um, the, that's the, not unusual. The real that's problem a great. Is, I, I never intended to to put any, yeah, right. any any fertilizer or whatever down there, and my garden happened to be very sandy. Yes, and the tree now is looks in every aspect a a a, a good tree, right? Yes, <laughs> but the 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 trouble is in the spring when when it's flowers, the flowers are very few, and then the the flowers they don't tend to stay. In other words, uh, sometimes it even come up with little you know. Images of of of, of apricots, but they mm-hmm. never grow back and they fall off. Yeah, and, and Bill, with the Thanks seedling, the call, that's Bill. not. Yeah, that, that's a very good question, Bill. Uh, and with a seedling, that's not unusual. Uh, sometimes it takes seven years to uh, for a seedling to actually begin to produce flowers and fruit. So you're a little oh, bit okay. ahead of the curve on that. That's great. Uh, two things, though, Bill. Uh, I, I do want you to get fruit. But the, the one issue is the fact that uh, most apricots, especially seedling varieties, do need another variety of apricot to pollinate. Ah. And uh, so if they're not getting, uh, you know, pollen from another tree, uh, that's going to be an issue. So at the very least, uh, uh, you know, you may have to plant another tree close by to get the the fruit that you're hoping to get. The other thing, uh, Bill, is nutrient. And uh, if there's a shortage of boron, uh, which is a micronutrient, uh, often it's hard for the plants to actually, you know, from the flowering stage, develop the fruit. So I would use a well-balanced fertilizer uh, and put that on now and uh, again first thing in the spring and look for a fertilizer and I would give you an example something like a 10 15 19 but it should say on the label with micros micronutrients 
And those micronutrients, uh, particularly boron in there, are very helpful in helping those flowers form fruit. So, Bill, those are a couple of options I think you have. And I would really, after all this time, uh, let's get this uh, fruit happening. But you may need another apricot tree for pollination. And I think that's going to be the biggest issue. Yeah, right, because the first one was a surprise. He tossed a pit into the into the flower bed, yeah. and darn it, if a tree didn't pop up. The second one will be a little more calculated, I think. Barbara in Qualicum Beach, thank you for your patience. You're up. Good morning. Good morning, Brian. I Good have morning, uh, bought a I have bought a house in Qualicum Beach with a large, mature Chusan palm tree in the front yard, mm-hmm. and I know they tolerate heat well, but um, I'm just wondering about this kind of uh, heat and dryness. Do I need to water it? How deep-rooted are they? Yeah, actually, most palms are very shallow-rooted, uh, which is uh, quite interesting, Barbara. And uh, I w- and this is really important. Uh, in this particular heat, yes, you need to get water uh, on. And this is really important. Try and do it in the morning, if you possibly can, when the temperature's on the rise. The plant will make better use of the water that you would put on. If you water in the evening, plants tend to transpire a lot of that moisture away. And the second thing is when you water right around the drip line of the tree, where the outside fronds are uh, right in the perimeter, that's where they need the water the most. And and again, as we talked earlier, Barbara, if you can give a thorough uh, deep watering, and sometimes depending on the soils, you don't know how long that would be. But after you've watered, maybe just take a, a little shovel and dig down to see how far the water penetrated. If it's in around the roots because palms are shallow, uh, mm-hmm. you should be, I would say, 10, 15, 20 minutes of water around probably would be okay. Good stuff, and uh, that's uh, you know it's such a lovely tree too to have, uh, and it's kind of exotic, especially if you really want to take good care of those. Thanks for the call, Barbara. We're back on the on this side of the Georgia Strait in Coquitlam. Bill, good morning. Hi, Sterling, and your guest. Um, I'm wondering if you could please advise a, a herbicide or some other product that I could use to put on roots to kill roots underground. Yeah, uh, a lot of it, and Bill, that's a very good question. Now, this is in generally you in your garden or your lawn, essentially, Bill, where, where in particular? Yeah. Is it is it mostly just in your garden area that you're talking about? Yes. Yes, okay. Um, Bill, uh, the there isn't anything left on the market that would go into the soil as a complete vegetative herbicide. Uh, and, I, and I would like to say that... Um, uh, probably your best thing, you need to get uh, uh, the herbicide on the foliage of your plants. And on the foliage of your plants, uh, uh, the, probably the best one is, and I know there's some controversy here, but I, I would like to say that uh, there's two stages of Roundup right now, uh, glyphosate. I'd like to mention that uh, on glyphosate, Health Canada sent our um, landscape industry in Canada a notice saying that they have gone back and done all their original research on Roundup and used as directed, it's safe for Canadians. That's one okay. issue, yeah, right. which is, uh, I think uh, there's a lot of concern about that. But sure I, is, I yeah. Health Canada, uh, and that's available. Um, but the other thing is uh, there is another form of Roundup, and I don't know why they would call it Roundup, uh, but uh, is an acetic acid or vinegar formulation, which we're finding very effective as well. So folks who just don't trust glyphosate, um, there is a product which is acetic acid. Now, it may not have the same translocative uh, ability as the glyphosate does, but uh, the if you get anything on the leaves, and by the way, when Roundup hits the soil, it becomes inactive. It only works on the green part on of the leaves. plant. Yeah, ah. so that's so that's something that I would take a look at, Bill. And you've got a couple of options right now in terms of what you would look at. But it doesn't work quickly. It works slowly, but it does do an effective job. And according to Health Canada, uh, it is safe to use as directed. 
Well, that's very handy to know, too, because you're right. There's, it's, it's certainly not without its controversy. Let's get another caller in here, Brian. The very patient Rick standing by in Delta. Good morning, Rick. Good morning. I was calling to ask you years ago, many years ago, we planted a cherry tree. I've done absolutely nothing with it. Mm-hmm. Uh, it never had any fruit on it. And now, all of a sudden, it's quite high, quite large, and it's got a ton of uh, Queen Anne cherries but I can't access them because uh, I need a crane. Ah, yeah. okay. And uh, I, I, I'm looking at it right now from my backyard, and it's like I can't get at them. And I wonder, uh, can I? Can it be cut substantially back? I get a proper trained tree person, uh, arborist in, and and still produce cherries at uh, at an accessible. Uh, height. <laughs> okay, that's a good question. Rick, I'm, <laughs> I'm going to throw a couple of, uh, options at you here. Uh, num- number one is uh, yes, you certainly can prune that in the dormant season uh, from November through the end of February. And you're right; it's uh, I don't think you need necessarily an arborist. A lot of the tree removal companies or tree pruning companies have arborists on staff, uh, so mm. that'll make your decision much easier. They can give you advice on that. But absolutely, during the dormant season, you could prune it back to bring it uh, way down. And uh, if they can get the branches, it's hard on cherry trees because they want to grow upright uh, more horizontally. That would be one option. So that, that'll take a couple of three years before you do that. But, Rick, I want to point out to you that today, uh, which weren't available that long ago, there are dwarf cherry trees. Uh, they're on uh, a Gisela rootstock from Belgium. And this rootstock is very dwarfing, uh, maybe 8 to 10 feet high, as much as these new cherries will grow. And you can get Royal Anne or Rayonier, which is very close to that. Uh, and uh, honestly, within two or three years, you'll be eating fruit on a much lower tree. So uh, there's a couple of options, Rick. All right. Well, thanks very much for all the calls, Rick, and all our callers this morning. Brian Minter, always a pleasure to have you drop by. I have literally 30 seconds. Uh, should we worry about the lawns going brown now, or is, or is it in fact they're supposed to go brown in Metro Vancouver at this time of year? Well, it's a whole bunch of questions, and 30 seconds is not going to happen, but try and keep it as green as long as you possibly can. Uh, They've been bad-mouthed too long. Lawns are important for sequestering carbon, for producing oxygen, for doing all the right things. So when we are allowed to water, keep your water on your lawn as as much as you're allowed to do, and keep it as green as long as you can. Uh, It pays dividends to the environment and to us as well. Brian Minter, always a pleasure, sir. A real pleasure. Thank you for this, Brian. We'll talk again soon. Okay, bye-bye. There's Brian Minter, and thanks for all your calls. Checking vanmuralfest.ca, that's the official website, and this is what you see when you go there. 60-plus new murals, 11 neighborhoods, 40-plus live shows, mural tours, public talks, and more. It's Vancouver Mural Festival, 2021 version, August 4th, to 22nd. The executive director of the Vancouver Mural Festival is Andrea Curtis, and she's on the line now in the Arts Corner. Andrea, good morning. Thanks for joining us. Good morning. My pleasure. So let's talk about the Mural Festival. 60-plus new murals for this year. How many do we have around Vancouver right now? Just ballpark figure, do you know? 
Well, around Vancouver, it would be really hard to say, but in terms of what we've done since 2016, we've done over 250 murals. So by the time we're done this summer, there will be over 300 for people to go around the city and see. That's why we put an app together last year, actually. So we've, we've got a uh, mobile app that people can download for free, and it's really easy to find all 300 of those murals um, that are going to be popping up this summer um, by the end of August. So I'll be there. Fantastic. So um, last year, uh, what uh, what sort of now we're we're sort of hopefully coming out of COVID, and and by August the fourth, mm-hmm. one can only hope, Andrea, that we we're in phase three, and that'll allow for a lot more relaxed attitudes, and certainly for gathering that sort of thing. But a mural festival, we're talking about ninety nine percent of which takes place outdoors anyway. Uh, well, tell us about last year, what you had to do uh, dealing with the in the thick of the pandemic. Yeah, you know, I think we were really fortunate in the fact that visual arts is really, um, it, 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 it's something that's able to be seen and, in, and enjoyed on your own time and safely, mm-hmm. um, especially when it's outdoors. And so last year, I think a lot of us are going to remember when um, downtown was boarded up, when all the yes. plywood hoarding went up in front of those shop windows. And when we saw that, I think it was around Mar- late March, early April that's of right. 2020, we saw that and we said, this is our job. This is what we do. Let's get those painted. And so with the support of the downtown BIA, Van City, City of Vancouver, and a number of other partners, we got 60 murals painted in two weeks. And when we did that, you know, adding color to the street and changing it from this hoarding that says we're scared of being broken into to this hoarding that says we're resilient and we're creative, uh, a lot of the business associations around Vancouver said, all right, let's do this together. And last year, we were able to do over 60 murals in nine different neighborhoods, working together with the neighborhoods themselves and with community groups so that we could offer something to Vancouverites that was safe and distance that they could do on their own time. Fantastic. And uh, so this year, you've expanded. You had nine neighborhoods involved last year. This year, Andrea, you've got 11. How do you go about connecting a neighborhood in, in desi- who desires mural projects or murals uh, with artists who are prepared to go there and, and do one? You know, we work year-round on this, actually. It's, it's quite a big job. So we're working with, um, like I said, with the stakeholders, with the business associations, all of our neighborhoods, um, except for one, are on uh, Air in Vancouver. We're doing one on the North Shore in Edgemont Village. And we continue to expand. We're really lucky that all of the neighborhood stakeholders really see the value in this. And so we take artist submissions early in the year. We work with curators. And we're working really hard to make sure that the art that you see and the colorful work you see, um, whether it's, you know, floral um, installations or fun cartoon things or abstract, whatever it is, mm-hmm. we're making sure that the artists behind all of that are at least 50% women. Uh, at least 50% people that are black, indigenous, or people of color. And so it's quite a lot of work to match up those artist rosters with what the neighborhood is going to enjoy. Interesting. Andrea, is this a labor of love for the artists who do receive the commission, or do they get compensated for their efforts as well, as, of course, having a mural for all to enjoy that they did? That's it. Thanks for asking that question. You know, while it is a labor of love, they are compensated as much as they enjoy the work they do. We get to pay them. We pay them well. We, we make sure that we're paying all of our artists by Carfax standards. So it's a national standard in terms of how artists are being paid. 
Mm-hmm. Same thing with our site crews and our staff. So there's a lot of fundraising that's involved as well. That's why we're working and we're busy year round, making sure that you know we do this in a way that's enjoyable for the community, but that we're also serving the artist population as well at the same time. So now one of the things, one of the features that you have on the website, and I uh, talked about it a little bit on our introduction, was mural tours. So because there are 60-plus new murals from the North Shore all the way down to the River District and and right down by uh, the Canby uh, Station, uh, they're kind of scattered around. So in order to enjoy them all, you've got mural tours organized. Tell us about those, Andrea, please. Yeah, the mural tours, we're actually keeping focused in the Mount Pleasant area. And so anybody who's aware of the mural festival, our genesis was in the Mount Pleasant neighborhood. Mm -hmm. There's such a high um, per capita artist population. So in the Mount Pleasant neighborhood, you're going to find quite a lot. And there's a lot to easily walk about and see. Everything else that, um, that that's able to be seen right from River District on South Vancouver, right mm-hmm. up to Edgemont, that's why we have the mobile app so that tours can be self-guided and we offer a lot of self-guided opportunities. But the tours themselves, we're actually going to be focusing just on Mount Pleasant, like I mentioned, but we're also adding in um, the Hogan's Alley part of Strathcona. So the area just south of Chinatown, there's right. going to be free walking tours there as well to learn a little bit more about black history in Vancouver. Talk about the 40-plus live shows, uh, and it would imply performances. What sort of shows are we talking about? Yeah, if only we could scatter those all over the neighborhood, that would be amazing. And, you know, we're really hoping to next year. For this year, all of those shows are in a a COVID-safe, you know, crowd-controlled pop-up patio area. So we've actually taken over... Yeah, we've taken over a parking lot in Mount Pleasant, um, just off of the WeWork office. They've graciously donated their parking lot to us. And then we turn that into um, a 50 to 75 person, depending on provincial health regulations, um, at a time uh, performance space. And then people are going to be able to see uh, two showings a day all the way from August 4th until 22nd. There's a lot to see. I mean, with 40 shows, we have a lot of different types of programming. You certainly do. Well, it's very exciting. I, I love the energy this morning, Andrea. And I'm going to direct our listeners to your official website, which is vanmuralfest.ca, vanmuralfest.ca, to learn all about the Vancouver Mural Festival, August 4th to 22nd this summer. Uh, Andrea, thanks very much for doing this. Uh, we'll check back with you uh, once the festival is underway and see how things are going, okay? Okay. My pleasure. Thanks so much. And stay cool out there, everyone. <laughs> There's a challenge there. Thank you very much. There's Andrea Curtis, the executive director of the Vancouver Mural Festival.